Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. My name is Justin, or J. Rule, and this is... Derek Cronus, and I'm drinking a beer and not wearing pants tonight. <laughs> it's a nice image. <laughs> I'm, wearing a, I'm wearing a shirt. You're wearing a sweatshirt. I am wearing a sweatshirt, yes. Um, I forgot about your J. Rule name, and I still like that, so... Okay, yeah, J. Rule um or drool drool yeah drool. like i'll be drooling later right yeah especially with no pants on <laughs> yep i'm kind of uh, drinking a beer it's a root, root, beer. root, root beer i've been really like on with stuff lately i don't know why i see like debates people have like debates like oh what's the best you know mug a and w barks well, i don't know is there any other root beers out there like are yeah. those the big three? I think. I think those are the big I don't three. Know. Culver's. You live in the Midwest. Culver's root beer is pretty good. Hmm. I don't know. I. They all basically taste the same. I think. Yeah. The, yeah. They basically have the same roots. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> hey, I got her laughing. That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> I can see the smile on her face from here. Yeah. God, this is so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. <laughs> You decided to stay with me, so. <laughs> All right. Well, how how have you been here these past couple of days? Because yeah, it's been like basically two days since we recorded. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's been busy. Um, I didn't go to work yesterday because I didn't feel well when I woke up. Um, my youngest daughter has stayed home from school today. She was sick. So yeah, there's some some crummy shit going around. Yeah. Yeah, but, it's starting to get to be that time of the year. It's, I mean, I assume up by you, it's been wet. It's basically rained the past few days here. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has. Um, but what about you? How you been in the last forty-eight hours? Uh, good. Um, I started rewatching the first season of Wheel of Time, basically just because I didn't have anything else to do last night. I read a little bit, finished up the next two chapters of Curse of the Fallen, and then read a couple chapters out of the other book that I'm reading. The Wrathbringer, so. So you're reading three books too, huh? Yes, and I am trying to finish The Wrathbringer by November so I can do the buddy read with Silverstone Books on uh, the, the Emperor or Empire of Silence. 
I just got the book. I don't remember if it's Empire or Emperor, um, but it sounds pretty cool. And I haven't read a sci-fi book in a while. I think the last one I read was Dune. I wanted to read that before I saw the movie. Fair. So. Yeah, I picked up Red Rising at Barnes & Noble the other day. So I will uh, probably try to get to that. I kind of want to finish my Redwall series um, before I branch out into the books we're not going to cover on this on the show yeah i get sometimes yeah i wanted to read all my aliens books um but sometimes you just get burnt out and you got to switch it up a little bit yeah you know like you read the same series i've heard it mixed things on the red rising because I, I think the newest book just came out like a month or two ago for that but i i feel like people said the first one's not great but it gets better after that or maybe that's just the opinion that i've seen on it but i don't know i haven't read it so yeah, I've been I've been hearing the exact opposite. Um, mainly, oh, oh, mainly, mainly TikTok uh, is is where I'm getting my information from, and everybody that I see on TikTok that they do book reviews, they rave about Red Rising. And from what I understand, it's like a a nice blend between sci-fi and fantasy, um, something to do with colors, uh, which is kind of intriguing to me. So. Yeah, I'm excited to get to that one, but I mean, I guess that's the great thing about the the to be read shelf is that they'll always be there to be read, you know. Yeah, and the books add up faster on that than they're subtracted for sure. That's fair. Yes, that's legitimate. Um, but yeah, I guess anyway, should we kick off our our Silverstones little snippet here? Yeah. Cool. Well, as always, um if you've been following along, we have a promo code that you can use at silverstonesbooks.com. That is DJ Quest. So please do us a favor, check out their site, pick up a book from an independent author, and save a little cash while supporting them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I like Silverstone's books a lot. Um, I think I've just kind of limited myself to like <laughs> trying to only do one order a month. Um, <laughs> I still have yet to do them. it. I don't know why I'm hesitating. So, oh, what the heck? Yeah, there's a couple of books on there. It's all about timing. Whenever I'm looking, I'm not in a mode where I probably should be buying. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And there's like, yeah, there's so many. Like, I mean, that's basically where I've gotten all my books from recently with the like, I'm, I'm working on collecting the Dragonlance books. Um, and there's like fucking 200 of them. <laughs> Yeah, I've been picking those up from thrift books every now and again. But otherwise, like if I've been buying anything like new, it's been from Silverstone. So, yeah, I'll jump into our patrons here. We've got Jan, the picker of pies, Luciana Etrigan, Ryan, the topological, Damien, the rock of faces, Nate, fiddle me this, Shield Anvil Dylan, Quartermaster, Master Sergeant, Lieutenant Parker. And David Mullally. We still need to come up with a nickname for David. Um, also, I guess along with our patrons, I know I messaged you about this earlier today. I was kicking the idea of a round of uh, forming some sort of survey to send out to you guys. So maybe by the time this comes out, we might have something like that put together. Um, or maybe if you're just a avid listener to us, shoot me a message if you'd like to be included in that. Or you, Justin. Um, get a hold of one of us. And we can add you to that. We still got to come up with some stuff. But I've got an idea on like some stuff I want to ask in it. So um, we can talk about that at some point. Yeah, sounds good. Surveys are nice way of getting feedback. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
I always operate under the the uh, I don't even know what you would call it the premise. I always operate under the premise that if no news is good news. So we're not hearing a ton of constructive criticism. So I'm just assuming that we're doing well and things are still fresh. I would hope. Yeah, I know. I, I looked on Apple Podcasts not too long ago, and there was um, I don't remember how many reviews were there, but there was two with comments, and uh, they were both pretty positive. The one. Uh, the one of the people, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I don't remember who wrote it, but they're a little disappointed that we were covering another book just because they want us to keep going on the mails and stuff. But, um, I don't think that's a bad thing. No, no, no. Follow along on that book. Follow us along on uh, curse of the fallen. It's a good time. We got the author, uh, that joins us every, every episode and she's, she's, a she's fun. <laughs> she's fun. Hell, all three of us were singing last time, so that is true. Yes, but anyway, uh, we're covering Memories of Ice Chapter Three here. This is our fourth episode in this book. It's still surreal to me that we're we're down two books already, and we're slowly trudging through the third one here. Um, yeah, I mean, we're gonna be. I mean, I, I don't know if you're gonna read this tonight once we get done, but I mean, the next chapter we're gonna be. 100 pages deep in this book already and on the fourth chapter. So, I mean, at least 100 pages deep. They'll probably be, you know, like 120 or whatever it is. I'm not sure where it ends up at, but yeah, chipping away, like you said. Yeah, slowly but surely. You know, it's it's surreal because, you know, while you're going through it, it feels like it takes forever. But then once you get to the end, you're like, damn, that went quick. It does. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, chapter three epigraph here. Dujek one arm and his army awaited the arrival of Caladan Brood and his allies. The fell Tisti Andi, Bargas clans from far north, a half score of mercenary contingents, and the plains dwelling Rivi. There, on the still raw killing ground outside of the city of Pale, the two forces would meet. Not to wage war, but to carve from bitter history peace. Neither Dujek nor Brood, nor anyone else among their legendary company, could have anticipated the ensuing clash, not of swords, but of worlds. Confessions of Artanthos. Yeah, that's one of probably the deeper ones we've had. So far, yeah, for sure. But I think it may, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. And um, After reading this chapter, it makes sense. So Yeah, I feel like it uh, is a nice summary of the events that transpire in this chapter. Yeah, it is, yeah. All right. Uh, well, first section here. Ridges dotted the northern hillsides past Pale. Scars from a time when Pale tried to expand to the steppes that bordered the Rivi Plain. These plains were sacred to the Rivi since the beginning of time. The farmers of Pale had soaked their blood into the ground, though this land was slow to heal. The Maibi drew her antelope hide tight around her. She had new aches and pains this morning, telling her that the child had drawn more from her. She felt no resentment as she knew... There was no way around the situation. She also knew there was very little within the child that was natural. Time was dwindling quickly. She watched her daughter play. She could not find it within herself to curse the child. For all her flaws and twisted demands woven into her daughter, she would not spin hatred into her. All the same, she clung to her withering body as her daughter grew. Just less than a season ago, she had been a young woman and unwedded. She had been proud and unwilling to accept marriage proposals. The Rivi were a damaged people. She could not think of a husband or a family in the time of such a devastating war. She had also not succumbed to the duty of 
need to make more sons to throw into the warpath. Her mother had been able to read bones, the ability to retain the entirety of their people's memory, every lineage back to the time of the dying spirit's tear, while her father held the spear of war, first against the white-faced Bargast, the next against the Malazan Empire. The Maivi missed both her parents, yet she understood their deaths, and her refusal to accept a man's touch made her an ideal candidate for the spirits. She was ideal to place two shattered souls, one beyond death and the other held back from death through ancient sorceries. Two identities pushed together and her, used as a vessel to feed this unnatural child. The Rivi traveled in herds, so no walls or pens were necessary. She was intended to be used just once, then discarded, this might be. She had found a new name, and now every truth in her life was contained within it. Old wisdom, weathered, without gifts of years, yet I am expected to guide this child, this creature who gains the season with everyone I lose, for whom weaning will mean my death. Look at her now, playing the games a child would play. She smiles, all unknowing the price of her existence, her growth, her demands of me. She heard footsteps behind her and a tall, black-skinned woman stood next to her. The woman spoke, saying the child was deceptive. The Maivi sighed and nodded. The dark woman spoke again, saying she was hardly a thing to generate fear or to be the focus of arguments. The Maivi asked if there had been more then. The woman said Kalor had renewed his assault. The Maivi looked at Corlat and asked if there had been any change. Corlat said that Brood remained steadfast and that if he had any doubts, he hid them well. The Maibi said he has doubts, yet his need for the Rivi and their herds outweighed them. This was a calculation, not faith. She wondered if such an alliance would hold, once an alliance was made with the one-armed Malazan. Corlat spoke, saying there was hope that the Malazans would have more information on the child's origins. The Maibi interrupted, asking if, if, that was, if it was enough to alleviate a potential threat and that Brood needed to understand that two souls were nothing to what they had now become. Her eyes watched the child as she continued to speak, saying the child was created within the influence of a Talan Imus, and its timeless worn, becoming the binding threads, and were woven so by an Imus bone caster, a bone caster of flesh and blood. The child belonged to the Talan Imus, though her flesh may be that of the Rivi, and she may contain two souls of Malazan mages, she is now a soul taken, and more yet, a bone caster. Even all of this pales in comparison to what she will become. What need did the Talanimus have for a flesh and blood bone caster? Corlett said that she was not the correct person to ask that question. The Maibi told her neither were the Malazans. Corlett asked if she was certain. Don't the Talanimus march under Malazan banners? The Maibi said they no longer did. There was a rift or some secret motive, but they had no way of guessing. Corlett said she guessed that Brood would be aware of these possibilities, and that in any case, she would be allowed to witness and partake in the matters as the contingent approached. As she looked out before her, she could see Caladan Brood's neatly organized camp. It had been a long march starting at Old King Plateau to where they were currently. She thought, a home tore apart by years of war, of marching, ar of marching armies, and the incendiaries of, our, of the Moranth falling from the sky. Quarrels whirling in the black speckled silence, horror descending on our own camps, our sacred herds. Yet now, we are to clasp wrists with our enemy. With the Malazan invaders and the cold-blooded Moranth, we are to weave braids of marriage. Our two armies, jaws locked on one another's throat for so long. But a marriage not in the name of peace. No, 
These warriors now seek another enemy, a new enemy. To the south of Brood's army stood the recently repaired walls of Pale. Though they still bore the marks of violence afflicted upon them, a reminder of the Malazan's sorceress capabilities, a group of riders passed through the city gates, coming towards Brood's camp. The Maivi eyed the great banner suspiciously and thought her fears a curse. I mean, she told herself to not think of the mistrust she bore the Malazans, and that now they had been outlawed. One campaign ended, and another began. Would they ever see the end of war? The child joined Maivi and Corlat. Maivi thought about how appearances were deceiving as the child looked only to be 10 or 11, while in reality, she had the advantage of hundreds of thousands of years lived, and Corlat had been alive for thousands as well. Corlat asked Silver Fox if she had a good play. Silver Fox said yes, for a while, but then she grew sad. Corlat followed up her question and asked why she was sad. Speaking, Silver Fox said that there used to be trust here, between the hills and the spirits of the rivi. Now it is broken. The spirits were not but untethered vessels of loss and pain. The hills will not heal. The Maibi's blood turned to ice. She was showing sensitivity that would rival the oldest shoulder woman th throughout the tribes. The Maibi asked if there was any hope, if anything could be done. Silver Fox said it was no longer necessary. Maibi didn't know what she meant. Silver Fox did not answer and said if they wished to be a part of the parley, they need to get going. A lot uh, kind of going on there right off the bat. Mm-hmm. I can't help but get the feeling of, like, sadness through this part, you know? Especially as she's explaining herself, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, th I think she must know that she's more than she appears. Um, and as I was rereading this before we talked, and even as I read it in my summary, uh, I mean, she's just a hodgepodge of everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I... I'm inclined to think that she's going to play a pretty major role probably in this book. And I mean, I guess we'll see how far she goes in the series, but um, just with what we find out later on in this chapter it, and all the different parts she contains, like it doesn't seem like something that would be like a throwaway character or, uh, you know, like a, a secondary, like minor character or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I see where you're going with that, but at the same time, I wonder how long she's going to be around, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess I, I can wait a little bit to talk on that because I um, just in, I don't remember which section it is of mine coming up. Um, you know, I've it, it makes me wonder, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think she'll probably play a pretty big role. I don't know, and, and maybe not, I guess. But Yeah, I, I guess it, it, I would imagine that the Maibi is going to be a conversation that we speckle throughout this chapter as the majority of it is from her perspective. Yeah. And I guess uh, uh, Silver Fox is what I'm referring to being like a, I think she'll be a major player. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, were I'm you thinking I was talking about the Maibi? Yes. Or, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I, th I mean, I think she'll probably be dead pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, Silver Fox is just, I guess, leeching off of her, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's not like she's trying to, but she just is. Right. You know? Well, I mean, that's essentially the nature of, of her being at this point. Right. And I don't know. It's one of those things where it's just, it, it's just super sad. And I mean, it's sad to hear, but she's got, I guess, the right attitude, you know? 
the maybe for sure yeah. yeah i mean it's i i think you and i would would both relate to this and the fact you know of or or any decent parent you know i mean would gladly you know give their life for their kids so that i mean she doesn't seem to be upset or she's at least come to terms with the fact that okay she's feeding off of me to grow stronger and i'm withering away or whatever um but she's going to get to keep going and and i think uh any good parent would find that an acceptable trade yeah do you feel like she blames herself a little bit with what she kind of says at the beginning of the section where she's like, hey, well, because I'm unwedded and because both my parents are dead, made me kind of an ideal candidate for the spirits. Uh, I don't think, I guess I didn't get the feeling that she blamed herself for just it. Just more just kind of along the lines of acceptance. Yeah. Like, oh, it yeah. makes sense because of these variables. Right. Yeah, I just, I think, you know, I mean, it was going to be somebody. It may as well be her and... You just I was, do with that what you will. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised at how much they revealed already. Like I wasn't expecting for them to, you know, be on you know, having a conversation about the two souls that are inside Silver Fox. But I almost well, wonder if we wouldn't have picked up on Nightchill in the prologue, if this would have confused the crap out of us at this point. Or or that's where if we didn't pick it up then, I mean, it, it, we would have picked it up here. Right. Yeah. Thing, but. Not until we've read, had read on uh, further in the chapter, but going through this true. section alone, you'd be like, what? Two souls. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But no, you were very perceptive and picked that up though. So that was good. Well, we had some assistance with Jim there. He kind of led us to the answer. Uh, well, I feel like before you had already come to that conclusion before we talked to Jim. Yes, but I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't put it together that night chill was still a thing until he started talking about the curses. And oh. then when he was explaining that scene on the Rivy plane between Tattersail and Bellardin, Bellardin, that she had night chills sack of bones, essentially. She had soul shifted into Nightchill's withered body, and then the Talan, Pran, K. Rule, and then Krupp all at that ritual towards the end of Gardens of the Moon, basically bound Nightchill's body with Tattersail's soul in it to Silver Fox's body, etc. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm just surprised at how much I remember from Gardens of the Moon. Because some of it, I feel like, just eludes the hell out of me. It, it's nice to have a recollection and have things, like, really tie together. That's uh, why I've enjoyed listening to Nate's podcast with his buddy. And, I, uh, you know, they cover cover things a couple chapters at a time. Um, but just to keep things kind of fresh, because, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know how much stuff I would have remembered. But it's also fun to now kind of be on the other side of the coin, where, like, we've experienced that book and we've gone through it and to hear somebody else going through it for the first time was fun oh um, yeah maybe i'll have to check that out then yeah yeah the, the episodes are maybe most of them i think are roughly an hour so that's not too bad no um i i guess i didn't have a ton of talking points for this particular section mainly just because it it, it felt really introductory um you know we're getting more or less a lay of the land and we're kind of getting a deeper dive into 
the Maivi's emotions about uh, varied amounts of things. Is is uh, Maivi? Is that how you pronounced it in your head? Yes, the Maivi. Okay. Like the maybe. Right. That's I was like maybe, but it's an H, so I'm like my maybe. So I was just curious if you had a different pronunciation on that or not. No, no, I agree with you. I definitely think it's the maybe. Okay. Um, I only had a couple points, but the dying spirits tear, or I wonder if it's tear. Um, do you think that's referring to the cripple god's crash landing? Or not at all? I guess I'm not sure, but just when I read that, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that um, seems to be like back a long time. So that's, I guess, uh, your guess is as good as mine on that one. I don't know if it necessarily relates to the crippled god because I would imagine that this goes back to like way further as the Talani mass were here before the crippled god crash landed. So I think that she's just talking about how far back her lineage goes. And but that was for the Rivi, though. So, I mean, I guess we don't, I don't oh, know if we really yeah, have a time right. frame on the Rivi. I guess, yeah, no, that's fair. I didn't. Yeah, I don't know why I got her mixed up with the Talan. Never mind. Ignore that. I don't know that. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Um, I guess, yeah, we'll see. It's not something I'm terribly hung up about, but it was just one of those things, you know, you're reading something just kind of pops into your head. Yeah, my my other point here, I, we kind of already talked about, but I I think... I think Silver Fox will be a fairly major player. I mean, again, in this book for sure. Beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely... And I know that we'll probably re retouch on this as, you know, this isn't the only instance of this coming up in this chapter, so... Yeah, I, that's true. Um, I don't really have anything else here. I don't feel like we're I'm missing any major talking points. It's just... It's surprising to me that, you know, you've got this child that, you know, we're told is, you know, probably not a teenager yet, but has all this wisdom, right? Uh, all yep. this knowledge. And so it's just kind of, I know you like to use the word jarring, and I, I think that's appropriate here. Just the way she talks and acts and stuff, it's like surprising to see that out of such a young character. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel a lot of similarities between the Rivi and the Wiccans, you know? What Silver Fox is to me, and again, it's purely just because we just finished Dead House Gates. Well, not just finished, but we have finished Dead House Gates. And a big proponent of some of the characters in Dead House Gates was you have Wiccans whose souls are placed in child's bodies. And these children are like 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, like Nil and Nether. I imagine them as like my oldest daughter's age. You know, so that's kind of what I relate to Silver Fox as well. It was just, well, how old is your oldest daughter? I guess I don't even 11. Know. 11. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's about the age of Silver Fox, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was just thinking it, it just kind of came to me that Silver Fox almost feels like the other side of the coin to Felison a little bit. Um, roughly, you know, I mean, she's a little bit younger than Felison, but Felison's got this like hard ass attitude. Where Silver Fox, like, I think she could be a hard ass if she needed to, but she's got a little more, like, finesse to her, it seems. Well, um, yeah, and I mean, that can equate to the saying, right? Like, if you know now what you did, or if you know now, if you knew now what you did back, or what you would have back then, like, you would have done things a million times different. I mean, she's got 
she's an 11 year old girl who's got the memories of night chill who is apparently from what i'm gathering an elder god of some kind i mean if she's brother to or if she's a sister to k rule he's an elder god i would assume that she's an elder goddess um and then you've got tattersail who was what probably in her early 20s when all this went down so well i thought she was she was like over 200 or something like that oh yeah yeah that's right yeah but yeah she yeah she i guess with what her like lifespan could be yeah she's probably the equivalent of like a 20 something year old but I, you know it's weird because i feel like in silver fox there's more do you feel like there's more tattersail than night chill i don't like know yet to, no i'm not sure yet i feel i yes on first impression i feel like there's more tattersail than night chill which makes sense because there wasn't much left of night chill <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense um so yes but i guess it's hard to say for certain yeah i wonder where it'll go or if it even matters maybe it doesn't even matter i don't know we'll have to see that'll be the fun part about reading is um you know like i'm not even sure who i'm going to be excited to read about in these in this book like what characters because in like in deadhouse gates like i wanted you know to keep going with like fellas that's what i wanted to see probably most and this one I, I mean it's obviously still early in the book but i i don't think i've quite picked a favorite character yet and maybe we don't we, we might not have even met everybody yet but I think Silver Fox will be up there, and I think Bauchelain and Corporal will probably be up there as well. All right. Well, uh, should we move on to section two here then? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm done with my tangents. <laughs> okay. For it, now. it would be nuts. Yeah, you're funny. The place of meeting was 30 paces beyond the outermost pickets, situated on a low rise. The barrows that had been raised to dispose of the dead after the fall of Pale were visible to the west. The Maibi wondered if those countless victims watched from afar, the scene unfolding before her. She thought to herself that spirits were born of spilled blood. Without the appeasement of a god or spirit, they would become hostile forces, plagued with nightmare visions and spite. Is it only the Rivi that know these truths? From war to alliances, she wondered how these ghosts would look upon this. Silver Fox is heard telling her mother that they feel betrayed and she will answer them. She reached out to take the Mibi's hand as they walked. Silver Fox continued on to say that this is a time for memories, ancient memories, and recent ones. The Mibi asked if Silver Fox would become the bridge between the two. Silver Fox tells her mother that she is wise and that the hidden is always is slowly revealed. Look at these once enemies. The Mibi fights in her mind, raising up the differences and struggle to hold on to your dislike and hatred for them because that is what is familiar. Memories are the foundations for such hatred. But memories hold another truth, a secret one, and that is all we have experienced. With some faint irritation, the mother tells her daughter that this is what the elders tell them, and she knows this as blame is meaningless. Silver Fox asks her mother to ask Corlot of her memories. The Mimi glanced over at the Tisti Andi, and could tell that she had been listening and wondered what response Corlat would give her daughter. Corlat smiled and explained that the experiences were the same between the two armies, but also throughout time among all those that possess memories. Whether to one person or group of people, life's lessons are the same. 
even among the Talani mass. This is what you are telling us, Silver Fox? Silver Fox shrugged. Corlat continued to say that with all that is about to come, think on forgiveness, but know, too, that it must not be freely given. Silver Fox swung her sleepy gaze to Corlat and said, Sometimes forgiveness must be denied. Silence followed after that, and the Maibi thought to herself that her child scares her. And what scares her more is that she could understand where Kalar was coming from. Moments later, the Malazan reached the rise. There were four of them, Dujek and Whiskey Jack, who was on Dujek's left side. To the right was a nondescript man, and the Maibi saw his eyes roved restlessly. This man held the outlawry pennon. The fourth rider was a black Maranth. Corlot could be heard saying that the four were hard-bitten lot. The Maibi wondered who the man was on the left of Dujek. Corlot said that this was Whiskey Jack and added that he cuts quite a figure. After some smaller exchanges of words between Corlot and the Maibi, Silver Silver Fox spoke saying that she would like Whiskey Jack for an uncle. The Maibi questioned her daughter and Silver Fox said that they could trust him, even though he and Dujek were hiding something. She goes on to explain that the Moranth inside his head was laughing, but no one knows why. Not a cruel laugh, but one full of sorrow. Silver Fox frowned as she looked at the man with the banner. She said that she is uncertain of him and always has been. Corlot and the Maibi locked eyes over Silver Fox's head, and Corlot suggested that they move closer. They approached the rise, and two figures appeared from the picket lines. Caladan Brood was huge. Him and Dujek had been at war with each other for 12 years on this continent. In all those years, they would finally come face to face. Next to Brood was Kalar, and if anyone here in this deadly game was a mystery, it was the self-proclaimed High King. The only thing the Maibi could be certain of was Kalar's hatred for Silver Fox. Brood had made use of Kalar and his tactics. Kalar commanded no loyalty amongst the soldier of Brood's army. Judging from his facial expression, nothing but disdain for Dujek showed on his face. It would be hard not to take offense at his expression, but all that were with Dujek simply ignored the man. Dujek stepped forward and introduced his contingent, Whiskey Jack, Artanthos, and the leader of the Black Maranth, whose name is too long to pronounce, so they all call him Twist, because he shook hands with a rivy spirit up in Black Dog Forest. Silver Fox murmured Artanthos and quickly, quietly said that he wasn't he hasn't used that name in years. Corlot said that it could be an illusion, but she suspected nothing out of the ordinary. The child nodded and said that the prairie's air rejuvenated him. The Maibi asked who he was then. Silver Fox said that in truth, he was a chimera. After Dujek's introduction, Brood introduced his contingents. Dujek was frowning and asked where the Crimson Guard was. It was explained to Dujek that Prince Ka'az Davor was attending to internal matters and would not be joining them. Rude explains that they picked up some auxiliary units in replace, to replace the Crimson Guard, also a Saltoan horse regiment, four clans of the Bargast, a mercenary company from One-Eyed Cat, and another from Mott. Dujek almost chokes and asks if that would be the Mott Irregulars. Brood's smile revealed filed teeth, and Brood asked if Dujek had experience with the Mott Irregulars while he commanded the bridge burners. Dujek said that this was true and that they were a handful, and not just in a fight, but often 
They would steal supplies and then run away. Callor makes some statements to which both men ignore. Rude asked if the arrangements by the Darugistan Council have proved satisfactory. Dujek says that yes, and that their donations resupplied his army. Rude says that there will be a delegation coming from Darugistan a bit later, but for now, the command tent awaits. Dujic said that if that's what Brood says, then let's make our way there. He also adds that they have been at war a long time, and one arm looked forward to looking, working alongside him. Silverfox observes the two lock gazes with each other and quietly said that they both are pleased. Corlot states that this was a remarkable alliance. The Maibi said that pragmatic soldiers are the most frightening among the people she's known. Silverfox giggled and said to her mother that she doubted her own wisdom. First thing that I have here is the part where she's talking about uh, this, the spirits were born of spilled blood, and without the appeasement of a god or spirit, they would become hostile forces. It's just like, wow, such a powerful thought. And, you know, how betrayed these spirits must feel, giving their lives for a cause that is now asking for peace. And it just, it seems really unfair. Deep thought, Justin. Um, yeah, did not even cross my mind. So, and I know that Silver Fox even tells her mother that they feel betrayed and that she will answer for them. But I don't know really what that means as far as Silver Fox is con concerned. You know, granted, we're going to get more revealed later on in the chapter, but, you know, I def it, it definitely feels like a little bit of foreshadowing. And Silver Fox says that. Yeah, we'll have to see. I wouldn't uh, be surprised if you were right, though. Yeah. It, it's with that and something else that she says later on in this section, which we can kind of swing back to that, that part where she says she will answer for them. But the other sure. thing that I thought was cool was when the Maibi asked if Silver Fox would become the bridge between the two armies. And between ancient memories and recent ones... Just what a hard-hitting line, and I feel like now that I'm now that I summarized it, I feel like this is also a little bit of foreshadowing as to what she kind of reveals a little later in the chapter. Well, and that's an awful lot to ask of a ten or eleven year old too. You're going to ask a kid basically to bridge two aren't like to be the binding force between two armies, like like that's just not a normal thing. Yeah, but I mean, physically she's a kid, but mentally. Yeah, I mean, she's yes and no, I think, like, because obviously she's still playing games and stuff. So I, I don't know if, you know, like, I don't know how you word it, like the development development stage that she's in. I mean, she might know a lot of things, but I don't know if she's like, at like a full capacity to like, like really fully understand everything quite yet. And I'm sure she'll get there pretty quick. You know, she'll grow into things. But like at this point, it's it might be a little bit like over her head maybe i don't know maybe i don't get that feeling i feel like she definitely is comprehending what's going on as the maibi points out later in the chapter it, it definitely seems like she's holding back it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like she doesn't understand it feels like she's holding back i can see that too um the other the other thing is when Silver Fox asks her mother to ask Corlot of her experiences. And I just, I love this line from little Silver Fox here. Uh, basically, she's telling her mother to walk in someone else's shoes as their experience could be the same. 
and that it's all a matter of perspective and keeping an open mind. It's a good point too. It's just you're definitely getting a lot of of Silver Fox's wisdom right away in this chapter, you know, which I think is what is alluding to it, or allude, or not alludes, but like intrigues you to Silver Fox. Like by far, in my opinion, she's the star of this chapter. Yeah, definitely. Oh, for sure. I would agree with that. It's just all of this, like memories are the foundations of such for such hatred, you know, and I think that she's just in a very weird way, trying to assure her mother that the doubts that she has about the two armies coming for peace is a good thing and not necessarily a bad one because just because you were taught to hate doesn't mean that you should continue to hate is essentially kind of what I'm getting from, from that. I think that's a good point. The other thing that I, and it was just maybe the flow of the sentences, but when Corlot was saying, Hey, with all that is about to come, think on forgiveness. And then Silver Fox swung her sleepy gaze to Corlot and said, sometimes forgiveness must be denied. Like, I very well could have gotten that wrong. It could have been Corlot who said that and not Silver Fox. But I feel like based on the way that the Maibi reacts after that, that it was Silver Fox who said it. I thought it was Silver Fox also. Okay. But just what a fucking... I almost feel like it's like your insufficient line in <laughs> Dead House Gates. Like sometimes oh. forgiveness must be denied. Just, just hold. hits a little hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is like, yeah, because obviously like something like that, you want to forgive them, but you're just not going to. So you're not forgiving and you're not forgetting. <laughs> Which also brings me back to the part where she says that she will answer for the spirits. And then she's like, forgiveness must be denied. So I just, I want to know where all these like little subtle things are taking her, you know? I mean, is she going to rebel against the Malazans? Is that where this is going or like what? I don't know if I have that sense, at least not yet. I mean, not that it couldn't happen. I just, if it does at this point in time right now, I would be pretty surprised. Fair. All right. Well, I just, I thought it was a brutal line and yeah. It just, it hit home. It struck hard. It, it was a good line for sure. Yeah. Um, the other part when Silver Fox kind of frowns at uh, the banner carrier or the Pennian car- carrier, uh, our Tanthos, she looked at him and she said that she is uncertain of him and always has been. And I feel like this statement comes into play a little bit later. Um, but if my theory about him is correct, I'm just marking that down so that we can use that to swing back to at some point. So just remember that. Sure. Yes. I don't. I, I don't know why. Like for whatever reason. Like the, I remember the first time I read this, I just felt like Peran was this guy. Think so? Well, like I just like that's when he was like described before they gave him a name I'm like oh okay it's it must be you know Dujek, whiskey jack and pran and then the moran for whatever reason that's what made sense to me and i this character no i don't i don't think is pran but you and i had a conversation about it texting back and forth but i i i did think it was pran initially for whatever reason hmm. I, don't, I don't know why fair enough um 
But to keep it going later on in the chapter, Silver Fox says that the prairie's air rejuvenated him. And, you know, her mother asked, well, then who is he? And Silver, Silver Fox said, in truth, he was a chimera, which going back to Greek mythology, right? Like Chimera, on top of the fact that we always seem to talk about that band. <laughs> I was thinking about that, yes. Yeah. It, you know, Chimera's three different animals combined. And if my theory is c- correct, then that would make sense. So, who are the others? That part, I'm not sure. But that after you mentioned this sure. to me, and, and again, we could talk about it a little bit later, but yeah, I, it got me wondering as well. So I feel like there's just too many subtle hints for it to not be. But again, I'm not going to take a pie for it. I'm not going to make a bet on it or anything like that. Aw. Boo. Are you sure? Uh, But I I mean, outside of that, my last, I just, Silver Fox is just, I'm just so intrigued with her here. And I feel like this section really brought it out. And it's funny because, like, it just, it, it's so masterful to me that on a very basic level, basically just two armies are parlaying right now. But we don't get any, we don't really get any of that. You know, like, there's some introductions that are made and that's fine. But a lot of it is from the Mybee's perspective. And she's just hearing all of this stuff being blurted from Silver Fox, who's clearly never met anybody before. But yet, Silver Fox must have some type of ability to read people because she's able to pick apart that the Moranth twist is just laughing inside, but not, but like a sorrowful laugh. Do you think it's, I, I, that bugged me a lot because I'm like, what would he be like laughing about sorrowfully? Do you think it's because he thinks it's going to go poorly? I don't know. I don't know. Or it's just like, He's so pained with loss and heartbreak and devastation. And I mean, who knows, you know, I mean, I don't remember much about the Moranth. I know that there's like different colors of them and they, they do different things. I feel like we haven't really gotten a lot of their history. No. Uh, Yeah. But that was really all I had for that, that section. Um, I, I just, I thought it was great. I loved being able to see Silver Fox's wisdom and just the conversation that they had around memories and experiences. And uh, I, I just thought it was great. Yeah. Well, we're ready to move on to my next sep- section here, which is like half the freaking chapter. Yep. Yep. You definitely got fucked on this one. I mean, you've, you've, you've been hit hard a few times too. So it's, I think it's my turn to take the brunt here. So, yep. I wouldn't mind a little break. <laughs> um, as as you would say there, drool. Get your popcorn ready. Get your cozy blankets ready. All right. I've got it ready. <laughs> Brood's command tent was in the center of the Tyst Andy camp. And though the Mighty had grown familiar with them, she was still struck by the strangeness as she rode with the others. The Tyst Andy hardly spoke even among themselves. She struggled to understand this. There were secret tragedies in the tortured past of the Tice Dandy, wounds that would never heal. She realized that even suffering was capable of becoming a way of life, though the thought of extending that type of life across millennia brought her feelings of horror. 
Among humans, cold acts of indifference usually translated into brutal cruelty, though the Tice Andy had yet to reveal any similar acts of violence. They fought under Brood's command for a cause that wasn't theirs, and if they were killed, they simply left their brother or sister on the ground. It had fallen to the rivi to retrieve their bodies, to treat and mourn them in their customs, while the Ticed Andes seemed to find some amusement in all the attention given to a corpse. The command tent that used to belong to the Crimson Guard lay directly ahead. Inside, sitting upon a support pole, was a great raven. The Maivi held a sinister smile when she saw Crone, who had been hounding Brood, offering advice like a devil upon his shoulder. The Great Raven had tested Brood's patience more than once, though she knew Brood had an uneasy truce with the Raven, which seemed familiar to how he treated Anamander Rate. It was a hard relationship to understand all the same, which made it all the more difficult to understand why Crone seemed to bridge between the two. Crone screeched out, saying she did not offer greetings. No, it was amusement. Dujek asked what amused the bird's master. Crone took offense at being called a bird, saying she was Crone, the unchallenged matriarch of Moonspawn's murder of kin. Whiskey Jack said he would accept that she spoke for all the crows, since she was loud enough after all. Crone was tired of the disrespect and said she would feast upon Dujek's corpse when the day came. Dujek told her she would probably break her beak on his hide. Brood was tired of the stupid banter and asked Herlakel, Herlachel, Herlakel, if he still had the beak strap, to which he said yes. Crone hissed and told Brood to repeat, to repeat that offense was at his own risk. Brood told Crone to hold her tongue. Looking at the rivy woman, Crone said the child in her care was about to surprise them all. She asked the raven what she sensed in the child. Crone replied imminence and nothing else and welcomed Silver Fox by name. Silver Fox looked at Crone and said hello and said she didn't realize that her kind were born out of rotting flesh of and was promptly cut off by Crone. Crone said that such knowledge should never be spoken and she needed to learn when to stay silent for her own safety. Smiling, Silver Fox said she meant her Crone's safety. Crone said in this case she was correct but Silver Fox needed to be careful. There are those within the tent that would view her awareness as a deadly threat if she were foolish enough to reveal it as she was not yet able to protect herself. Nor could the Maibi, who the crone cherished and loved. They would both need protectors. Silver Fox nodded as her mother held her tighter. She was not blind to the threats Silver Fox received or the power within her, but she did not sense any power within herself, violent or otherwise. Looking at the raven, the Maibi asked, or the might be thanked, rather, her for her support and love in her mind. The central chamber was dominated by a large wooden map table, warped and misshapen as if it were made by a drunk. As Whiskey Jack entered the room, he called Brood a bastard. Brood said he knew it wasn't pretty. Whiskey Jack said that's because Fiddler and Hedge made it in the Motwood. Brood asked who they were. Whiskey Jack said they were his two sappers when he commanded the Ninth Squad. They had organized a game using a deck of dragons and needed a playing service. 100 bridge burners gathered to watch, despite the fact they were under constant attack and in the middle of a hood dam swamp. During the battle, they were over overrun. They retook the position. All of this happened in about an hour, and when they got back, someone had taken the 200-pound table. They were pissed. Brood said it was a donation from the Mott Irregulars, and it had served him well, but he would have it returned to Whiskey Jack. Or said he would have it returned. 
Whiskey Jack said there was no need for that, shaking his head. Silver Fox gasped and called out to her uncle, Whiskey Jack, and said that those sappers, they cheat, don't they? Whiskey Jack said she shouldn't repeat that accusation, especially if there are bridge burners around. Whiskey Jack said he didn't know if they cheated. They made the rules so complicated, no one can tell. So he had no idea or not. The Mighty had a realization. Whiskey Jack knew nothing about Silver Fox, about who or what she was. As far as he was concerned, it was their first meeting. Yet, she still called him uncle. He knew not the child, but the woman she was. They waited for Silver Fox to say more, but she just ran her hand over the table. Brood told Herlikel to get the maps that showed the Pani and Doman territories. Once laid out, Dujek said none of their maps were this detailed and asked how recent their intel was. Brood said three days. Crone's cousins had been tracking movements, while the notes about the Doman's organization and tactics had been pulled from various resources. Brood said the Doman was set up to take the city of Capistan, Marik, Seta, and Lest had all fallen within the last four months. So far, the Panians' forces were still on the south side of the Caitlin River, but they were preparing to cross. Dujek asked if the Capistan army would contest the crossing. If they don't, then they're asking for a siege. He took it no one expected the Capistan forces to put up much of a fight. Brood said the situation in Capistan was messy. The city was ruled by a prince and had a coalition of high priests who were at odds with each other. Things had gotten worse since the prince hired a merchant company to bolster his own minimal forces. Whiskey Jack asked who he hired. Brood said the Grey Swords. Whiskey Jack had not heard of them. Brood said he had not either, and they were up from Ellingarth. Over 7,000 of them. If they're worth a damn or not, has yet to be seen, but their standard contract is twice the coin of the Crimson Guard. Keller said their commander had read the situation well. The prince had more coin than soldiers, and the Panians won't be bought off. It is a holy war as far as the seer is concerned. What makes things worse is that the high priests have the backing of each temple's private company of well-equipped and trained soldiers. Nearly 3,000 worth of soldiers while leaving the prince with the bottom of the barrel for his own cap and thaw, which is not allowed to have more than 2,000 by the law. For years, the Mask Council had been using the cap and thaw as a training ground and bribing away the best soldiers. Whiskey Jack interrupted Kalor, as it was evident he would have kept talking if allowed. Prince Jalarkin had gone around the law by hiring mercenaries. Brood said this was correct, and in retaliation, the Mask Coalition had passed another law saying the Grey Swords could not engage beyond the walls of the city, so there would be no contesting the crossing of the river. Whiskey Jack called them idiots and said the least they could the least they could do was unite all the temples against the Panians, since it was a holy war. Catler said he imagined they thought they were doing just that, all while keeping the prince's power in check. Brood said it was more complicated. The ruler of Maurik had escaped with minimal bloodshed by arresting all the priests in her city and handing them over to the Panians' Tenescauri. In one move, she saved the citizens of her city, got even more rich from the loot from the temples, and got rid of a lifelong problem. The Panians here granted her governorship, which was way better than being ripped apart and eaten by the Tenescauri, which is exactly what happened to the priests. The Tenescauri is a peasant army, and the seer doesn't supply them. They are fanatics. They are given the blessing to do whatever they need to do to survive. 
to arm themselves. And if some rumors are to believed, then cannibalism may be the least of the worry. Dujek said they heard similar rumors and asked Brood what they were to do about the city. Let it fall or attempt to save it. The seer had to know they were coming. The cult had been spread far and wide. He knew they would have to cross the Catlin River someplace in some time. If the seer took the city, then he would control the widest crossing, leaving them the old Fort West, or the engineers could float a bridge. Then they'd have to bring wood with. That would be the overland option. Otherwise, there were two other options. Brood said the city would be besieged, and the Panning's forces are formidable. They know that Septart Culpath is commanding the expedition, and he is the ablest of the Seer's Septarchs. He has half the total number of Beckwites. That number would be 50,000 regular infantry, a division of Erdomen, besides the usual attachments of support and auxiliary units. Capistan is a small city, but the prince has worked hard on the walls, and the city is oddly situated for district-by-district defense. If the Grey Swords don't pull out after the first skirmish, they may hold for some time. Dujek said he could land some Black Moranth within the city, but unless they were specifically invited, that could cause some problems. Kalar snorted and said that was an understatement. What city on Genabacus would welcome the Malazans into their city with open arms? That, and they'd have to bring their own food. That, and they'd also be faced with hostility, if not outright betrayal from the people of the city. Whiskey Jack said it was imperative they establish contact with the prince in the city. Silver Fox giggled at her uncle, saying he was orchestrating all these plans. Yet he had already set a plan in motion that he and the one-armed man planned to the last detail. He plans to liberate the city, but not directly, of course. They never do anything directly. They want to remain hidden such as it was a Malazan tech. Neither Whiskey Jack or Dujek showed any expression at her words. Kalor laughed, and it was the sound of bones rattling. Brood said he was glad to hear they were in agreement that they couldn't let the city fall, if they could help it. And indirect relief was probably the best option. On the surface, they needed to be seen, the majority of both their forces marching overland at a predictable rate. That would set the timetable to Septart Culpath siege and the Capistan, uh, and that Capistan cannot be their sole focus. Dujek nodded, saying the city may fall despite their best efforts, and if they are to defeat the Panning Domen, they need to strike at its heart. Brood asked what city they would target, and Whiskey Jack said Coral. Brood said they do think alike. Once they were on the north border of, north border of the Domen, they would drive south. A swift succession of liberated cities which would should please the governess. Then to Coral, they undo four years of the Panians' work in a single season. Whiskey Jack continued saying there was only one thing left to discuss. What could they expect from the Tyst Andy and Anamanda Rake? Coralat only return, smiled in return. Brood said, like them, they had already set some plans in motion. As they spoke, Moonspawn was traveling toward the Panians' territory, but before it reached the area, it would disappear. Dujek said that would be impressive. Brood continued that they knew little of what drove the seer's power, only that it existed, and like the Black Moranth, Moonspawn presented a tactical opportunity, and they'd be foolish not to take it. They also sought to be un unpredictable, and the Tyst Andy possessed formidable sorceries. Silver Fox cut in and said it wasn't enough. Corlett said that was a pretty big presumption. Kaller said not to trust a word she said. 
and that he echoed Brood's sentiment that having her here was foolish. She would betray them. Betrayal was her oldest friend, and that she was an abomination. Silver Fox only sighed, asking if he must always drone on like that. Dujek admitted to Brood that he was confused at her presence at the meeting. Who was this girl? Caller snapped, saying to look at the hag next to her. She's seen barely 20 summers, and that child was torn out of her womb only six months ago. That abomination feeds off her mother. No, she's not her mother. She's just a vessel. They all shriveled at the thought of the Tenescowry and their cannibalism. What do they think of a creature that feeds on the life force that birthed it? And there is more. She should be killed. Now, before her power surpasses all of them, the tent was silent. The mighty damned Calor in her mind. Is this what he wanted with his new allies? A divided camp? She damned him a second time. Silver Fox never knew. The girl's eyes were wide and filled with tears. Whispering, she asked if it was true. If she fed on her. She closed her eyes, wishing she could hide the truth from her and told her daughter it wasn't her choice. It's just who she was. And she accepts this. In her mind, she raged at the cruelty of the situation. Silver Fox told her she must accept it too, and that there was an urgency with, within her, a force ancient and undeniable. She knew Silver Fox knew it too. Calor rasped, saying she didn't know the half of it as he raced over and grabbed Silver Fox, his face inches from her. You're in there, aren't you? I know it. I feel it. Come out, bitch! Brood told Calor to release her and let her go, sneering as he walked away. The Mybe's heart raced once Caller grabbed her daughter. She felt shame, shame towards herself for not having the maternal instinct to defend her own as tears fell down her face. Brood said if he touched her again, he would beat him senseless. Whiskey Jack turned to Brood and said if he didn't offer his own warning, he wouldn't have beat Caller. He would have ripped his heart out. Caller said he was shaking in his boots. Whiskey Jack had had enough and powdered up his pimp hand and slapped the shit out of him. Blood followed as his head snapped back. Caller had his sword half drawn and stopped there as Brute had him by his wrists. Caller was vis visibly frustrated, the veins in his neck bulging. Finally, his sword dropped back into the scabbard. Brood told Caller to take what he had earned. He had had enough of his shit. If he wanted to test his temper, it would be his hammer striking his face. Silence returned to the tent as they watched Kaller's face bleed. Dujek took a cloth from his belt and tossed it to Kaller and told him to keep the change, you filthy animal. The Maibi put her hands on Silver Fox and said, Please, no more. Whiskey Jack asked Brood to explain what this child was. The Maibi dried the tears in her eyes and was about to give an explanation. Silver Fox told her no. She said to let no one answer but her, in all things. None other than her should answer. The Maibi reached out with a hand, but could not touch. She said her daughter must accept it. Maibi felt another wave of shame and thought that she must forgive. Forgive herself. She could not speak such words. She had lost that right. Silver Fox looked to Whiskey Jack, calling him uncle and saying, The truth of the matter is that she was born of two souls. One he knew very well, a woman named Tattersail, and the other half, the ravaged remains of a high mage, Nightchill. 
though little more than charred bones and flesh, but other parts were preserved by the sealing spell. Tattersail's death occurred in the Talan Warren that was protected by a Talan Imus. The Maivi was the only one who saw the Black Moranth flinch at that statement, which made her wonder what it knew about the situation. Silver Fox continued saying something within that, inf within that influence had happened. There was a bone caster from a distant past, an elder god and a mortal soul. With a cloth to his face, Calor spoke, saying Nightchill, such a lack of imagination. Did Cruel even know? Ah, the irony. Silver Fox continued on, saying it was those three who helped her mother. This rivy woman who had, an, who had an impossible child. She was born in two places at once. Among the rivy of this world and into the hands of a bone caster in the Talland Warren. Pausing a moment later, she said her future belongs to the Talan Imus. They were gathering, and they would need their power in the war to come. Rasping, Caller said it was an unholy conjoining, and they were all fools, every one of them. Corlett spoke up, ignoring Caller. Gathering? To what end, Silver Fox? She said that that was for her to decide. She exists to command them, to command all of them. Her birth proclaimed the gathering, a command to every Talan Imus on this world heard and now all those that are able are coming they are coming good job man that was uh that was a long one <laughs> it was but it was a lot of fun uh yeah there was a lot there and i don't know that i necessarily picked everything up I mean, there's definitely a lot. We could probably have a whole episode just on this section. There's a lot of strategy going on between Brood and Whiskey Jack and Dujack, right? And yep. all of the, the different factions, so to speak, of the Panion domain, you know, all of that was like super interesting. I don't really know what to make of it. It's just kind of information that's there. The whole sept arch thing you know from what i understand is there's seven seven arches or seven people or seven commands or did they say that or are you just getting that from the sept i guess i didn't i don't i don't honestly remember if they said there were seven i looked up sept arch okay yeah and it's a uh i figured it was like a general or something you know something kind of along those lines some sort of commander Yes, I think so. One of seven rulers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So So some sort of leader anyways. Right, yeah. Like a high gotcha. fist, I would imagine, but just on the, the penny and domain. Gotcha. I didn't jot this down, but as I was reading this, I don't know if you had any thoughts of it, but what did you think of the fact and so you've got the Tyst Andy fighting for brood, and when one of them gets killed, they're just like, eh, fuck the body. And then the Rivi like take care of it. I thought that was kind of odd that they just have so like little care for the you know their brothers or sisters that fall. Well, I think it brings us back. It brings us back to Gardens of the Moon, and uh, I think it was Animander Rake's conversation with Baruch about kind of the culture of the Tistiandi, and that they're just you know, and it's reiterated a little bit here, but they don't really have. They're not really fighting for themselves. They're just kind of mopey, I guess is how I would explain it. It was like their culture is just very indifferent, very uh, depressed. Like them as a 
nation and a culture and a group of people are just, they have nothing to live for, I guess. There's no passion in them. They're just doing what they're doing because, right, yeah. It's kind of the sense that I'm getting. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's kind of the sense that I'm getting here. And I thought it was cool how it kind of ties ties back to that conversation that Anamander Rake is explaining about his people. Sure. Is that they seem to have lived a very long and tragic life. What those tragedies were, I don't know. Yeah, so maybe it does kind of make sense. They're just kind of ready to be done with life, maybe. I don't know. Right. So they don't really care. They don't really care when one falls because they don't want anybody to care about their body if they were to fall. Is my it's guess. It's still kind of interesting to think about. Like I I guess I it's hard to imagine having that feeling towards it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um another thing, Crone's kind of obnoxious here a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wasn't ready for that. I totally forgot how obnoxious she can be. <laughs> but I was I was right about my uh, thoughts uh, that the maggots from the crippled god turned into the great ravens, yeah, great or whatever the hell they are. Yeah, that was in the prologue. You picked that up. Yeah, good on you, man. So I feel I feel good about that one. And maybe it wasn't like I feel like that one was uh, a little more surface level than you picking up nightshill because i wouldn't have picked up like i wouldn't and didn't pick up nightshill i feel like we have so many wins already in this book it does feel good yeah even if they're like you know if like everybody gets that one like i mean we're still reading this book too so it feels good to like pick up on it yeah for sure i think it's funny how crone thinks that this is just like top secret information but (laughs) I get the feeling that most people know this. (laughs) Maybe not most people, but the Tistandi anyway. Yeah. What do you uh, think of this 200-pound table? I'm just trying to, like, I'm just envisioning in my head, like, they got this table in a tent, and you got all these people crowded around the table watching them play this card game while this battle is, like, raging on. And then they get pushed off of it. And they got to retreat, and then they're like, oh, we got to get our fucking table. So they fight back and take the position back, and then the table's gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it, it ties in. I think it ties into what uh, Whiskey Jack said, or Dujack said about the Mott Irregulars is that they, on oh, top like of, you scavengers. know, being pretty decent fighters, they would just steal shit and then run away. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was a nice tie-in. The other thing that I thought was cool is the reason Silver Fox asks him if they cheat is because while she was Tattersail, they were playing that game. And I think Tattersail like, oh, saw, I? I like observed that. them cheating in some way, shape, or form, or like somebody told her that like everybody cheats or something like that. That was in Gardens of the Moon. Oh, I did not remember that. Yeah. I could be wrong on the specifics, but I feel like that's the situation, is that she observed somebody cheating or being told that they cheat or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, This whole situation in the city of Capistan seems interesting. So you've got got a prince who rules the city, but it sounds like maybe he doesn't really, like, rule it. Like, And then you've got this group of priests that are maybe 
you know, maybe the, the prince kind of rules it in name, but then the priests are the ones who really run the show. Kind of like a miniature but, Game of Thrones. Yeah, you know, and so like all these these different priests are siphoning off the best soldiers and leaving the prince with like the shitty guys. And even though he's got the shitty guys, he can only have 2,000 of them by law. And he's like, well, this isn't fucking great. So he hires another 7,000 like guys out of this other company. And they're like, the priests like, well, we don't like this. So then they put a law in place saying that, oh, they can't fight outside of the city, which seems interesting. So it makes me wonder like, well, what are the priests about? Like, do they think they can hold off an attack on the city or are they going to try to like bargain with the Panny and Doman or are they going to like turn on the prince and like flip sides or something? I feel Um, like they're too self-absorbed to uh, notice anything that's happening outside their walls. I almost kind of feel like it's like a miniature civil war and they're just not concerned with what's happening outside their walls. I mean, it's going to come knocking pretty quick. It's going to get real pretty quick. (laughs) And then we get introduced to these tennis gallery, which is basically just a horde of like, I I envision like peasants with pitchforks basically that are insane. And I thought, man, I would love to see these guys fight, uh, the the horde that was chasing down Coltane and the chain of dogs. Yeah, like, what that were would they be called again? I don't remember, dude. <laughs> it wasn't that <laughs> long ago, but I do not remember. But like that would have been a showdown. But these guys sound pretty freaking nasty. They're like <laughs> the guy who's running the show is like, yeah, you can follow us, but I'm not gonna give you weapons and I'm not gonna feed you. So just do whatever you have to do. Like that's just wild to me. Like <laughs> there's like anything goes. Do you think do you think that uh Erickson is making or poking fun at religion here? Just like how the, like we're not gonna give are? you anything, but yet you're blindly gonna follow us. Hmm. Um maybe, maybe that'd be a good question to ask him. That might be, but then again, I don't wanna like offend him if he's religious, you know. But I I feel like most archaeologists are not very religious, but that's just me I don't even not actually even knowing. if you asked I don't I don't think he'd get offended by it I, I I don't get that sense but I didn't think about that I don't know yeah it's interesting though just how devout these guys are to we don't even really know what their cause is yet I don't they just no. like, like we're just gonna take over and we're gonna eat people mm-hmm. right yeah it's a little fucked up like. <laughs> I imagine they have a banner that says we're here to eat people and fuck bitches. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I I don't know, but like if they're like I don't know. I just imagine how insane these people are. I, I don't yeah. know. I we're definitely gonna see more of these guys, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. And I want it like are they gonna put the uh uh god damn it, who were they? God, it's pissing me off. What was the fucking the guy opposite Coltane? What was his name? I feel like it started with a K. Oh, Camist. Camist Rouleau. And who was the other guy, though? Uh, shit. Why do we suck at this? I feel like it started with a K, too. This is embarrassing. Um, now I forgot my thought. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what was I even saying? Sorry, this is what happens when I drink a little bit and on an empty stomach. The tennis gallery and... It just seems so much more like savage than the people that were hunting down Coltane. 
Mm -hmm. Not that I think those guys had really any like honor or anything like that because they just, you know, what's his face like got him to surrender and then they just slaughtered him. But these guys just seem like on a whole different level. Like, I don't even think they'd give you an opportunity to surrender. They're just going to eat your face. Right. Yeah. They don't seem very nice. No, but I'm I'm oddly intrigued and I want to see more. Um, Let's see what they talk about, like the overland option, you know, hiking it to the city. And then they mentioned that there's two other options. I feel like that would be like the Moranth, maybe airlifting people into the city or maybe um, a Warren being as one of the other two options. I don't know what you thought. I would say that those probably align uh, very well. I can't think of any other options. I couldn't either. Let's see. What else did I have here? Any? Let's see. So towards the end of this, it says that, you know, when Brute or uh, Calor is threatening Silver Fox and Brute says if he touched her again, he'd beat him senseless. Do you think that Brute knows Calor has been cursed? Like he's not going to like I get the sense. I don't know how Calor could die exactly. So do you think Brood knows that? Like, what what good does it do to beat him? I don't really know, but... I mean, it probably hurts. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that... I think that Brood does know. I mean, he has to if he is taking advantage of Haller's tactics and knowledge is kind of what I see. I don't know. Keller's just a dick. And then I like that Whiskey Jack's like, I'll rip your fucking heart out if you touch that kid again. Right. Which Keller rightly deserves. I'm, I am I can't say that I'm a fan. I, I don't like him. I don't like him. Sometimes, like, I'm 50-50 on him because you know how sometimes you like the bad guy? Like, you like a little bit of evil in your cereal in the morning? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. He's definitely interesting. I don't know exactly what he's going to be about. But I f- find it interesting that he was a high king. You know, he ro- ruled over all these people. And now he's a second in command to Brood, which I imagine he just fucking hates. Oh, right. Yeah, but he loathes it. I he, find that interesting a lot. Yeah, he he absolutely hates his position. But he's stuck. He can't do any right. better than that. He'll never be better than second place. And that's all based on the curses. But I find that in like yeah, so I don't I don't know I'm I'm interested to see where it goes, just because yeah how do you go like <laughs> he just got demoted, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that sucks for him and now he's just got to deal with it. It's not like he's got a choice. So yeah, I don't I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, we'll absolutely. To, we'll have to read and find out for sure. Yeah. Um, another thought that I had. Um, where the Mighty reached out, you know, with a hand but could not touch, she said her daughter must accept it. Mighty felt another wave of shame and thought that she must forgive, forgive herself. She cannot speech speak such words. She had lost that right. Uh, it, it was I thought that was really kind of heartbreaking, you know, where she's got to come to terms whether she did it before this or at this moment. Uh, you know, like she realizes she's dying faster than she should be while she's watching her kid grow. Uh, at an accelerated rate would not be an easy thing. I feel like. Mm-mm. No, I, this whole chapter, I feel nothing but sorrow for for the Mybe. Yeah, 
I mean, I, th- I think you would agree that she's probably not going to make it too much further in the book. And, and maybe she'll just, I wonder if we'll even see the end of her or if it'll happen off page. I guess that's hard to say. It's, about that. I feel I feel like she's definitely, a, you know, an integral part of the story. But what exactly? Uh, who knows? Yeah, I, I can't see her making it through the end of the book. It's Corbolo Dom. Uh, yeah, that fuck face. Corbolo and Comister Lowe. Sorry. Yeah. It, it was driving me crazy. I had to I had to look it up. So we got two thirds of the KKK. Yep. Yep. Um, so the Black Moranth flinched when they were talking about Tattersale's death. So I know you had thoughts on that. Yes. So it wasn't the Black Moranth that flinched. It was actually uh Art Tanthos that flinched oh that's right for whatever yeah i i guess i know we had text back and forth about this but for whatever reason i I felt like there's only three of them uh for whatever reason but yeah uh artanthos yeah flinched who somehow i mistook as paran or thinking it was paran right um but yes uh what are your thoughts there well, I think it's funny that, again, when Silver Fox is observing him, she couldn't make any sense of him. Um, and then even when he's introduced, she was just like, well, he hasn't used that name in a long time. But also, she says that the prairie rejuvenated him. And I, you know, based on some of the things that happens at the end of the chapter, which... I guess there's no surprise they, you know, kind of ask about Bellardin, like where what happened to him. And I think this is Bellardin in Reincarnated or something, because like in Gardens of the Moon, nothing is actually revealed. I feel like Gnose comes across like a statue of something, you know, like a great collision, some type of physical thing, physical thing of sorcery. And he thinks that he sees Bullard in there, but I, I mean, I don't know. There's just so many things about Artanthos in Artanthos in this chapter. So many like subtle giveaways that I feel like it's alluding to somebody. If it's Bullardin, Bellardin, great. I love being right. But if it's not, <laughs> whatever. You know? But I think it's I think it's him. In some way, shape, or form, you know? You had mentioned this to me, and at the time when I read it, I didn't have that thought. But when you said, I think I know who this is, then my first thought was Bellardin. But now that I think more on it, I think it can't just be him. I think it's like Silver Fox. There must be somebody else there with him. And I don't know who that would be. God, what if it was fucking Tayshren somehow, too? But what if it has something to do with Nightchill and her curse? You know, like in the prologue, their brothers or her, yeah, her brothers are basically like, find yourself a good, like, partner or companion. You know, what if this is like his way of remaining attached to her in some way? Yeah, I don't know. I can only imagine it's Nightchill's memory who is is telling us that the prairie rejuvenated him and the, yeah. But also... If he flinches when she's talking about her death, or Tattersail's death, who else was with Tattersail? Nightchill wasn't really alive, so the only other person 
would have been Bellardin. I think it makes sense. I I really do. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. This it seems messy for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I, I will definitely be watching. Well, not watching, but like reading with a, a keener eye during these parts. If they are, if more are to come. So yeah, we'll definitely have to see what happens. For sure. Um, I think this was my last point here. But uh, Silver Fox says that Urberth proclaimed the gathering, a command that every Talan Imus on this world had heard. And maybe wonder, well, is there Imus on other worlds? I think so. I do think so. And they can't come? Do you think they heard it? I do think that they heard it, yes. I wonder if that's something that'll play out or not. Um, I feel like she talks about it towards the end of the chapter, too, though. Well, doesn't she just say that all that are able are coming? Yes, but she's unsure if they can. But I think that she does say that they definitely heard it. Well, more read and find out. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. All right, well, I mean, that was definitely a doozy of a section, and there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I think that, again, we could probably have a mini episode just on that section alone. So hopefully we did it justice y'all, but I guess with that, I'm ready to uh, put down my popcorn and read my section here. (laughs) Go ahead, man. All right. In his mind, whiskey Jack was reeling his thoughts spun spiraled down. Memories rose like ghosts, the volley of sorcery at pale, the decimation of the bridge burners, the assault on Moonspawn. A plague of suspicions and desperate schemes. A Coronas, Belurden, Nightchill, Tattersail. The list of mages whose death deaths could be laid at High Mage Tatron's feet. Whiskey Jack had not been sorry to see that the man take his leave had taken his leave. Inside his mind, his thoughts raced to that of the outlawry, and Lucine's proclamation cut loose. But it was all a lie. Only he and Dujek knew the truth in that. They had everyone else believe that they had been outlawed, and therefore they stuck with Dujek because of loyalty. Inside his mind, he tells himself that she knows. The girl knows. He had no doubt that this small child was Tattersail reborn. He could see it in her facial expressions and the way she carried herself. He damned Tayshren for what he's done, whether intended or not. Whiskey Jack had not known Nightchill. They've never spoken, and what he knew about her was solely based on the tales he had heard about her. Mate to Thielemon Bellurden, Bellurden, practitioner of high Rashan sorcery and among the emperors chosen, ultimately betrayed like the bridge burners. He could see what remained of that woman cast a shadow over the child. The gleam in Tattersail's eyes had darkened somehow, and seeing it frayed the commander's rattled nerves. One of those repercussions settled in his mind. He thought to himself, Oh, Hood, oh, gods, forgive us for our foolish games. Back in pale waited Gano's Paran, Tattersail's lover. What will Paran think of Silver Fox? He wonders if it is grief that is burning holes in Paran's gut. As he struggled to comprehend the young girl's words, he looked over at the Maibi, and sorrow flooded his emotions. The gods were cruel indeed. She would likely be dead in a year. The girl's final words jarred him once again. The Talani mass are coming. Kalar called for an abomination and would kill her if he could. He wouldn't abide to killing a child, but is she a child? 
But the most strangest and alarming fact of all is that she knew is that she is the new ruler of the Talani Mass. Whiskey Jack blinked and the occupants of the tent slowly came back into fo focus. Th Silence stood ambient in the tent's tent as thoughts mold around everyone's head. He looked at Silver Fox and felt a flash of empathy. He looked at Corlot and found her gaze locked on him. He found himself complimenting her on her extraordinary beauty in his mind. After a long moment, he nodded, agreeing to Corlot's unspoken message about the child. He understood now. Corlot sought a private conversation with him, and he just agreed to it. He wished he had quick been here, as he was sharp in these kinds of situations. He thought to himself, if he should tell Paran about Silver Fox, is it even really any of his business? Nice little section. I like the fact that we are basically inside Whiskey Jack's mind as he's kind of recalling everything that happened uh, in Gardens of the Moon. Um, so it was a nice little tie back into the book. Yeah, I think so. And I don't feel like we got a ton. Well, I don't know. I guess it's been a while since we read Gardens, but I don't remember how much we actually got in Whiskey Jack's head. Not much. Not much. I feel like a lot of his his actions were through the perspective of Paran or Tattersail or other bridge burners. Um, I don't know if I still... I, I, I know that uh, he's essentially confirming what happened with Kalam and Lucene at the end of Deadhouse Gates here about the outlawing of the bridge burners is was an all-out lie. I don't know. I still don't. I don't want to believe it. I don't still feel like there are... If Lucene is not lying, then I think that Tayshren has gone rogue. Isn't Tayshren dead? No. Didn't somebody just say in an early section that Tayshren's dead? No. They were saying Hairlock was dead. Oh. He... Dujek, or I mean, Whiskey Jack was not sad to see that Tayshren had to take his leave. I think that they made him go somewhere. I don't really know. I was just confused on names there. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I think I agree with you. I don't know how much. If maybe that's the point is to keep you guessing, but I don't know how much I believe on it either. Yeah, I think that's just what she's trying to say to make herself look better but isn't really, um, isn't being truthful, if that makes any sense. But I think so. I mean, honestly, I feel like the majority of the section is really just a recap. You know, I don't, I can't really think of anything that is so jarringly obvious or new or, you know, that needs a call out, so to speak. I like, again, you know, the cool history about Nightchill and his relationship with Whiskey Jack, but... Yeah, I don't think there's really anything new to call out, so to speak. Yeah, I I guess I would agree with you. Yeah, it was a, it was a good section, you know. And I honestly almost wanted to say at the beginning of this episode that we should just read them all and then talk about it because I've, they're so interconnected. You know, it's just different perspectives on what's happening inside this tent. Oh, I feel like that would be weird. <laughs> We've never done know. that, right? <laughs> But it, it, everything just relates to everything in this chapter. Or, it, it does. Yeah. So I guess with that, I'm cool moving on. Sure. Uh, let's see. What is this my last section or do I have one more after? You it? have one more after this. All right. Crone's beak gaped, though. This time the terror raced through her. Talanimus? 
and cruel, the elder god, holders of the truth of the great ravens, a truth no one else knew except for Silver Fox. Silver Fox, who read her soul like a book. Would the ravens be forced to defend themselves against her from those she claims to command? After all, the raven had never fought their the ravens had never fought their own wars. They had been there at the chaining and the fall itself. They had been born like maggots in the flesh of the fallen one, and that would damn them all. But they had not been honorable guardians. Uh, they had not been honorable guardians of the cripple god's magic, and they were not the ones who delivered the news of the Panian Domen and the threat it presents. And were they not the ones who delivered the news of the Panian Domen and the threat it presents? It was magic. It was a magic they could unleash if they were forced to. The child threatened much with her careless words. Her eyes turned to brood. His face was unreadable. Crone knew she should not panic. She needed to focus on the problems at hand. The Malzan Empire had made use of the Talan Imus during the Emperor's reign. The conquest of the Seven Cities had been the result. After Kalanved's death, the alliance dissolved. Genobacus had been spared the tens of thousands undead warriors who were able to travel on dust and wind, which allowed Brood to meet the Malazans on equal footing, or perhaps it only seemed that way. Had the Tyst Andy ever truly been unleashed? Had Anamander Rake ever truly been cut loose? Brood is an ascendant which is often forgotten. His war on Tennis, which held the power of the land itself, home of the eternal sleeping goddess, Burn. Brood had power in his arms and hammer to crumble mountains. Was this an exaggeration? A low fight over the broken peaks east of the later on plateau is proof enough of his more formidable younger days. Power draws power, and now the Talan Imus come. The power shifts once again. Her children spied upon the Panian Domen. They could sense the power rising, yet it remained faceless as if they were hidden under many deceptive layers. She wondered what hid at the core of that empire of fanatics. Crone could feel it. She knew the child knew, and that she would lead the Talan Imus to the heart of it. She wondered if Brood, Brood grasped this. She thought he did, even with Calor whispering his warnings. He would be rocked by the arrival of the undead, and what would be more shocking would be the fact that they were needed. What would be left of them after the war? And what the hell does Calor know about Silver Fox? So I feel like, again, it's just different perspectives reacting to what Silver Fox has said about the Tulani Mass, you know, and what exactly their purpose is and how Silver Fox is going to lead them, so to speak, I guess remains a mystery and i feel like all of these different characters in this tent are speculating on that uh yeah i mean i, I feel like it, it seems like it's presented to be a game changer that she's going to lead the imus the talan imus but everybody is hesitant why are they hesitant i feel like if she's leading the talan imus and let's just say she just wipes the floor of the panian domen What's to stop her from wiping out the Malazan Empire and everybody else? I mean, you've got these... Un What's that? I think you nailed it on the head. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I feel like I've had a little... I've, I'm on my second beer, but I haven't eaten, so I'm feeling a little buzzed. And that's probably why I struggled to read some of that chat, that section. <laughs> um, so sorry about that. But yeah, I, I don't know. That's why I think Silver Fox is going to be a player. If she's truly going to lead the IMS, if something doesn't happen to her, 
I mean, it, it seems like the Talant Imus could be or should be a pretty unstoppable force. Yeah, I think so too. I just, I'm curious as to know what's going to happen. Like how things are actually going to play out. Are they actually going to be an ally or are there going to be three, three different companies all at war with each other? I wonder the same thing because yeah, you think like, I mean, if they team up with brood and whiskey Jack and do Jack, like they should fucking just wipe the floor with them. I feel like, cause if they, if they've got tens of thought, well, I mean, I guess we know the, the one Septark has half of half the people. So he's got 50,000. So we know that the painting dome and I guess we could say at a minimum has a hundred thousand soldiers might not be very well armed, but a hundred thousand people could probably do quite a bit of damage, even if they're not armed. Right. But then I, I'm trying to imagine how do you how do you kill a Talanimus? It's already bones. If what I mean, if you just hit it, it's gonna fall apart. Can it like put itself back together? I, don't I mean, know. they're apparently. I mean, they're immortal. So right. So how do you fight that? I don't think you can. I mean, that's how they they won over. You know, seven cities, right? Not won over, but like took over. But it also, and I guess maybe it was before their transformation. I mean, we know that the Talanimus suffered some pretty heavy losses too. So maybe that was before, that must have been before they did their transformation. Right. So there very well could be not very many left. I mean, who knows? But part of me also wonders if, uh, you know, everybody is hesitant about the Talani mass because of their history. Caller even points out that the Jake Hut were pacifists, you know, and the mass basically wiped out. I mean, I mean, we know this, right? They wiped out the Jake Hut, at least on the continent that was in the prologue, which I believe is is Genabacus, as far as the first part, first part goes. So I wonder if they're just they're just seen as like ruthless killing machines and they can't be stopped. I, I mean, there must be a way to stop them. Otherwise, they'd be ruling the the world, I feel like. So I don't know. We'll have to see what we find out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we can move on to your points. Those are just <laughs> no, it's my initial thoughts. Yeah. Um. So Crone, Crone knows that Silver Fox knows some truth that nobody else knows. So I wonder... I wonder how Silver Fox could take advantage of that, or if you know she told others how how that could be taken advantage of. I don't know what the I guess downside is to be known that they're I guess extensions maybe of the crippled god. I don't know. I mean, because it also talks about maybe it's in the section upcoming, but they feed off magic. But we did see Hairlock. I think it was Hairlock in Gardens of the Moon killed a bunch of them, right? I believe so, yeah. Was he just that much more powerful? You know, were these ones younger where they couldn't handle the amount of magic he threw at them? I don't, or what? Know. I don't know. I don't remember. There's definitely some mystery there. And again, I feel like the answer is just beyond the horizon, but we're just not there yet. I have enjoyed in this book that it does seem that we've gotten quite a few answers very early on instead of just more questions. Yes. Which I feel brings us back to Jim's point in the prologue is that Gardens of the Moon is just like a, hey, you might like this, but if you reach it, I'm going to give you a little bit more and give you another taste. But then in this book, everything just gets laid out and answered for you, which yeah, I think is great. I mean, it follows the rule of three, really, even though 
there's more after this book, but I think it ties up things from Gardens of the Moon is kind of the purpose of this book alongside other things. Yeah, wonderful. I, if we'll keep getting references back to the first book or not. Oh, for sure. I think so. I think so. Um, I feel like we're getting a lot of that already, and I feel like it's just to progress the story, really. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Um, next point, we've got an event called the Chaining. Do you think that's like referring to when Kalor was cursed or something else? Do you think that's like when Rayist was, I guess, kind of locked away in his tomb or whatever? I think I think it, it's one of two things. It's the uh, the people that were trying to bring down the crippled god to fight Kalor, um, and they chained the crippled god and then fell. It's hard to get any type of order from here, but I feel like the chaining. What I'm guessing is in chapter two, um, when Quick Ben is talking to the crippled god, he mentions that the gods of his world chained him. Oh, so maybe I just didn't remember that then. I think that's what it's referring to, but I could be wrong. Gotcha. All right. Uh, so we get a phrase where it says, it was magic they could unleash if they were forced to, uh, referring to the great ravens. And I'm kind of wondering, like, if all the great ravens died, do you think the crippled god's magic would die with them? Like, are they just no like little placeholders for his magic or something? They must be. I wonder if, like, he will eventually absorb them back into himself and become power, more powerful? I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. And then it continues on and... Crone's uh, thinking that this child threatened much with her quote careless words, and I just I can't help but wonder if maybe Silver Fox knows exactly what she's doing, and then they're not actually careless; they're just you know that's how Crone perceives them. I think Silver Fox is being strategic here. I think so too. I mean, she's I almost feel like she's too smart for her own good. Yep, yep, I get that feeling too. But what to make of it? I, I feel like. Again, I'm in this position where I have the information. I just don't know where it's leading. <laughs> right. I guess that's a kind of a good segue uh, to my last point that I had um, where Crone says that she could feel it and she knew that she knew the child knew and that she would lead the Talan Imus to the heart of it. So I, to me, I feel like, is that saying that Silver Fox is going to ride in with the army of the Talan Imus to basically relieve the siege? at Capistan and break the Panion Domen, or is it something even beyond that? I don't know. I mean, part of me wonders how, what's the word I'm looking for? How hellbent the Talani Mass are in finishing what they started. Like Maybe they'll uh, be really hellbent. I mean, maybe it just depends on the leader they have. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I, I guess, is Tattersail leading, or is this Fran Cole and K Rule's plan to do what? I mean, they had to have had intent. I mean, clearly the intent was for her to lead the Talani Mass, but why? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Did they did they know about the Panion Domain, or did they have ulterior motives? I don't feel like they could have known. I don't th- right. Maybe. I don't think that they would have known about the Domain. Right. Or maybe they did, and we just don't know yet. But uh, yeah. Those are all the thoughts that I had for that section. All right. Well, we can move on to my next one. All right. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. 
defying her own self-disgust, the Bybee forced clarity into her thoughts. Listening to all that Silver Fox had said, she hugged herself. The secrets assailed her instinct, as much exposure was fraught with risks. Yet she finally understood the position that Silver Fox found herself in. These confessions were a call for help. The Maibi thought to herself that her daughter needs allies, because she knows that I am not enough. She knows that these two camps, who were enemies, now needed to be bridged. What was Tattersail and Nightchill are calling out to their old friends? Will they answer the call? She couldn't tell how Whiskey Jack was feeling. For all she knew, he could be agreeing with Caller's stance. She, she saw him and Corlat exchange glances. She told herself to think. It was everyone's duty here to consider what was best and leave their feelings behind. Silver Fox has stepped into the fore. She has proclaimed a position of power to rival Brood, even Rake. She wonders if Dujek realizes that they combined forces because of him, because of the Malazan Empire, and the High Fist himself. They have a new enemy, and much of them is unknown. Silver Fox had said that they will have a need for the Talani Mass. Only the vicious old emperor could have been comfortable with such creatures as allies. Even Kalor recoils at what's been forced on them. She wonders if the High Fist now has doubts, as she was sure that he did. Dujek was the first to speak after Silver Fox. He said that the Talani Mass is the army that is commanded by the Logros. By what Silver Fox has said, we must assume that there are other armies, yet they have no knowledge of them. He wonders why that is. Silver Fox answered by saying that it was the last gathering, where each and every Talan was bound to the ritual of Talan, which made them immortal. The life force of an entire group of people was bound in the name of a holy war destined to last a millennia. She was cut off by Kalar, who interjected that the holy war was against the Jaghut, and outside of a few tyrants, they were pacifists. Their only crime was to exist. Silver Fox rounded on Kalor and explained that she has had or that she has enough of Nightchill's memories, enough of them to recall the Imperial Warren. The police Kalor once ruled, before the Malazans made claim to claim to it. Kalor had laid waste to an entire realm. Kalor's grin was ghastly, as he said that Nightchill was in there, hiding, twisting the truth into false memories. The Maibi thought that these two have had a long history together, or rather one of the souls inside has a link to Kalor. After a moment, Silver Fox turned back to Dujek and answered his question. She told him that the Logro stayed behind and guarded the first throne. The other armies departed to hunt down the Jaghut. The Jaghut had raised barriers of ice, using their Omatos Palak Morin. The Jaghut sorcerers threatened the world. Sea levels dropped, species died out. As mortals, they could not cross such barriers, and thus their unity was lost. There was starvation. Kalor interrupted and said that the war against the Jaghut had started long before that. The Jaghut sought to defend themselves. Silver Fox shrugged, and after hearing this, she continued on. She explained that as to land undead, they could cross those barriers. The efforts at eradication had proved costly. You have heard no whispers of those armies because they have been decimated. Surely there's potential that some are out there continuing the war in a distant, inhospitable places. Dujek said that the Logros left the Empire and went to the Yag Odin, but then they returned. They were much diminished. Silver Fox nodded at this. He asked if they had answered her call. 
Silverfox frowned and said that she was unsure. They have all heard and will come if they are able to. She reveals that she can sense one near, at least she thinks she does. The Mibi thinks to herself that there is so much that her daughter is not telling them. She can tell that if Silverfox reveals too much, then her call may go unanswered. Dujek sighed and faced Brood. He asked the Warlord if they can continue their discussion on strategy. The soldiers all leaned in over the map. The Mibi took her daughter's hand and led her towards the entrance of the tent. Corlot joined them, and the Mibi's surprise, so did Whiskey Jack. The cool afternoon breeze felt comparatively felt good comparatively to the confines of the tent. They walked a fair distance before they stopped. Whiskey Jack fi- fixed his eyes on Silver Fox. He said that he sees much of Tattersail in her, and how much of Tattersail's memories does he possess? She explains that she sees faces and the feelings attached to them. She could tell that she and Whiskey Jack were friends, and at least that's what she thought. He nodded and asked if she remembered Quick Ben, the rest of his squad, Hairlock, Tayshrin, and lastly, Captain Gano's Peron. She said, Quick Ben, a man of secrets, a mage, seven cities. She moves on to Hairlock, who said, who she said was a threat and he caused her pain. Whiskey Jack tells her that he's dead now. Silver Fox moves on to Tayshrin. She explains that she fought him as Tattersail and Nightshell, and that the man had no sense of loyalty, and thoughts about him confused her. Silver Fox glanced away from Whiskey Jack as he asked about Paran. Whiskey Jack cleared his throat and said that she should think about the consequences of seeing the man as his words trailed off. The Mybe put it together that these used to be Tattersail's lover. The Mybe calls her daughter's name. Silver Fox explains that they have met Captain Paran, as he was the soldier who defied their lances. She faced the commander and told him that Paran knows about her, and to give him word. Whiskey Jack told her very well, and explained that the bridge burners will be visiting soon, and that Quick Ben and Mallet would be pleased to meet her reacquaintance. Silver Fox guessed that he wished for her to be studied, to decide if she is worthy of her support. Whiskey Jack smiled, stated that she was the she has the bluntness of the sorceress. Corlat said to Whiskey Jack that they have things to discuss. Corlat turned to Silver Fox and the Mybe and said that they will take their leave now. The Mybe ties it all together with what Silver Fox had said about the man that defied their lances. She tells herself that one question was answered, but yet many remained. She told Silver Fox that it was time to go and that they were to resume her studies on the Rivy. So, uh, another win. We got confirmation of the Imperial Warren here, which I was like 99% sure on anyway, but it was nice to, I guess, have that called out. Like you said, it's always nice to know that you're right. Right, yeah. Um, Man, I feel like I'm letting everybody down as I didn't have much in this section either. Again, I feel like it's really just a rehash. We knew about the Jag Hut. And the uh, Omatos Falak Morin, the Warren of Ice, so to speak, uh, just the added on part about the Jaghut sorceries threatening the world. Sea levels dropped and like species died out. Um, I thought that was, I mean, it brings it into perspective for me, I guess. I mean, I feel like a lot of this information we already knew. Yeah, maybe it was just a little bit more in depth, but right, I yeah. think you're right. I don't think you let anybody down, though. I wouldn't feel that way. Yeah, I I just I, I really enjoyed 
you know, the opposition between Caller and Silver Fox here. That was kind of cool to see throughout the chapter. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, again, the information that we we don't have any anything on outside of it just being information, we, we just kind of have to wait and see where it goes, you know. Um, I thought it was cool. Whiskey Jack and, and Silver Fox having a conversation about people we met in gardens of the moon that was nice <laughs> yeah yeah I, I yeah i don't have anything more for it it was just the imperial warren and then i feel like the rest of it was just a a refresher but in a new way if that makes sense yeah well uh i mean in, in my last section and the section that'll wrap this chapter up i feel kind of the same so i wouldn't worry too much all right ready to wrap her up here let's take it home all right Whiskey Jack watched the two Rivi walk away. He said she had revealed too much. The parley was working, drawing them in, and then the child spoke. Corlett murmured that she was in possession of some secret knowledge of the Talant Imus, memories that spanned millennia on this world. So much that those people had witnessed. The fall of the crippled god, the arrival of the Talant Imus, the last flight of the dragons into Starvald Demolane. Whiskey Jack said he had never seen a great raven so obviously flustered before. Smiling, Corlett said that Crone believed the secret of the raven's birth was not known to them. In their eyes, it is shameful. Rake is indifferent to it. Whiskey Jack asked what was shameful about it. Corlett explains how they were brought into this world during the crippled, crippled god's fall. The flesh that was ripped from his body and they grew from the maggots of it, carrying bits of his power with them. Corlett said they had seen Crone and other ravens. They devour sorcery. That is their true sustenance. Attacking them with magic only makes them stronger. Crone is the firstborn. Rake believes the power within her to be appalling, so he keeps her and her kind close. Corlett paused. Facing Whiskey Jack, she said in Jerusalem, they fought with a mage of his. Whiskey Jack confirmed, saying it was Quick Ben and he would be here soon. When he arrives, he will ask him his thoughts on the situation. Corlat said she looked forward to meeting this wizard, as well as that she was pleased to have met Silver Fox. Corlat believed she trusted the girl, and it appears the girl spoke true in her trust of Whiskey Jack. Whiskey Jack said so far, there wasn't really a reason for her to trust him. However, he would do his best to earn it. Corlat said she never met Tattersail, but it appeared more of her was showing with Silver Fox every day and that she seemed to possess admirable qualities. Whiskey Jack said she was a friend. Corlett asked what he knew of the events that led to her rebirth. Whiskey Jack told her they didn't know much. They learned of her death from Paran, who had come upon her remains. She died in the arms of a Thelemin high mage named Bellardin, who was traveling on the plain with the corpse of his mate, Nightchill. It stood to reason that he was going to bury her. At that time, Tattersail was a fugitive, and seemed plausible that Bellardin was told to retrieve her. As far as he could tell, it was as Silver Fox had said. Corlett was silent for a moment. When she spoke, it was simple and logic. It was a simple and logical question. They could sense Tattersail and Nightchill within the child, and the child admits as much as well. But where is this Thieleman? Where is Bellardin? Whiskey Jack drew a deep breath and shook his head, thinking to himself that he didn't know. I only had two things, and I guess we can address the second one first. Yeah, as, as I typed the summary up, 
I think it, it was obviously before you had text me about um, where you thought Bellardin might be because I hadn't thought about where he'd went. Just assume he was dead, but he's probably not. No, I don't think he is. And it was this part of the book or this chapter that made me look at all those clues with Artanthos. So I, I definitely think that you you must be at the very minimum partially right. Um, I don't think it's wholly Bellardin in Artanthos. I think again, I, I know we talked about it before, but I think there's somebody else there with them. Yeah, I just kind of how I feel, I guess. Maybe it's Tayshun. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you know, we'll just have to read and find out. I mean, hopefully we get some answers soon. Um, and I don't even know where I would go with predictions. I feel like there's just so much. There's so many possibilities as to what this ch- next chapter could be. You know, I, I don't even know if I have a starting point. Um, I feel like with all the parlay stuff, that's all semantics. And it's just kind of one of those things that you kind of have to get out of the way as a transition between Gardens of the Moon and this book. So right. I think that now that it's done, we'll kind of get a ramp up to the other things that'll happen. I think, I mean, I think the siege of this city is inevitable. Uh, um, I imagine that'll be probably later in the book, but I think that's definitely happening. Um you think so? Oh, it's good. I think yeah. that it's probably just going to be like one of the first things that happens between these two armies. You think so? Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, inevitably it'll happen throughout Genebacus. Kind of like a cat and mouse type of thing. I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. I don't know. But I think, I mean, it's one way or another. I, I think it's happening. How major it will be, I guess, is kind of up in the air, but... I don't know that we're going to, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think we're going to get a, a battle outside the city? You know, you got the city defending itself and then uh, Brood and Dujek and everybody shows up, just duke it out. I don't know. I mean, think possibly. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just going off of, you know, the chain of dogs. I feel like it's possible that, you know, these battles could just take place in one in one spot, but I feel like they'll probably move and rove around a bit i guess i feel a little differently just because i mean we know that they're focused on capistan for whatever reason i don't know what significance that city holds but it seems like they're hell-bent on taking it from the sounds of it so i don't i mean unless they take it quickly i don't know how much running around they're going to want to do until they take yeah well i thought the plan was was to liberate the cities that they had already taken and then well that was Dujek's plan or whiskey jack or whatever not the the panning doman oh. has control of those cities gotcha so i guess i haven't looked at the map i'll have to check that out but maybe cappy stands the next one you know the next town over or whatever so you think they're just going to try to intercept while liberating the other cities other cities from the panning domain it sounds like to me that they're gonna from whichever direction they're coming from they're going to try and liberate these cities. I get the sense that these cities are behind Capistan. So they're going to liberate them. I don't know that you really gain any like additional soldiers out of it, but then you've just got you've got friendly places you could fall back to, I suppose if you needed. Oh, if you yeah. turn and retreat. Yeah, the, it's all on the uh on the uh the the east side next to the Rust Ocean 
Oral, Marek, Seta, Lest, and then Capustan. So Capustan is the last step on the map, basically. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, we don't know what significance it holds, really. Right. Not yet, anyway. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think there will be a stand there. For sure. Yeah, I would agree. Well, I guess I don't know if I'll get to it tonight. I'm a little tired all of a sudden. But uh, yeah, I will. Uh, I'll probably read tomorrow when I can. I'm going to go throw some laundry in the dryer and probably eat something, and uh, I'll, I'll probably start reading it. All right, man. Well, uh, I will probably be up for a little bit, but, um, but yeah, another great episode. I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Yeah, it always feels like an accomplishment to get another one down, another chapter down. So we're one step closer to the uh, end of the goal here. Yeah, right. Yeah, very true. Very true. Hi, man. Well, enjoy your dinner. You enjoy the rest of your evening, and we'll chat soon. Sounds good, buddy. See you, bud. Bye. Bye.